I tell you, I've had a great time this week just sharing some things that God has used to change my life. I pray it's been a blessing to you. But you know, my life, uh, I was raised in a church. I got born again when I was eight, but I became religious. I certainly believed in God. I served Him the best I knew how. But I came into this thing of just always feeling so unworthy. And the more unworthy I felt, the more I determined I was going to do whatever it took to straighten up and earn the blessing of God. And I just got on this treadmill and was going faster and faster and faster. And I really believe that eventually I would have fallen off. I would have crashed and burned. I think this happens to a lot of people. But along the way, I had this encounter with the Lord, March the 23rd, 1968, 45 years ago this last March. And God just showed me his love and it revolutionized my life. And it came at a time that I was at my very worst the first time I had realized in my life that I wasn't worth loving. I totally saw myself as a religious Pharisee and hypocrite. And um, so I enjoyed the revelation of God's love for me, but it totally, totally ruined all my theology because I thought that God loved us when we were worth loving. And for the first time in my life, I knew I didn't deserve it. And after the emotion of that experience wore off, I went into severe conflict trying to figure out how could God love me? And I was raised under the Old Testament law. And these things that I've been sharing this week revolutionized my life because I began to understand and see how God could love me. And I've shared a lot of things. If you are, uh, if this is your first service, I believe that tonight will minister to you and help you. But really, you ought to get all of the rest of the CDs and DVDs that we've done uh, in this thing because it all adds together. And I was sharing about how that God is love. But there was a period of time that God imputed man's trespasses unto them under the law. This was the exception rather than the rule. And sad to say, most religious people think, no, this is the nature of God is to be this harsh, angry, bitter God. And I've been showing you that for 2,000 years, he dealt with people in mercy. And then the law came as a temporary fix until Jesus should come. And this is what Galatians chapter 3 says. I haven't actually turned over there and read those verses, but that's exactly the point that Galatians 3 is saying. And so the law, here, here's an example of what I'm talking about. You know, a child, when they're young... A lot of people want to just reason with their children and they don't ever want to spank them. And the Bible talks about spanking and it says the rod and reproof gives wisdom that if you don't correct your child, you hate your child. And uh, on and on it could go. And so there is a biblical way to train your children. It is not child abuse. But there's a lot of people, see, that just think, oh no, I want to talk to them. But if you wait until a child is old enough to reason and understand, you've lost them. The scripture says, chasing your son betimes. That means early while there is hope. You wait. And that's the reason people have the terrible twos. It's because they've let that child just establish a uh, bad identity. So anyway, you use pain 
to teach a child that no, this is not the behavior you want. And they get to where they turn from doing those things because they're afraid of punishment. And that is a godly method. But that's a temporary method. You don't want your children when they're 30 and 40 years old to be afraid that mom and daddy are going to whip them. You only use that for a brief period of time because they can't reason. If you take a two-year-old that goes over and takes a toy from their sister and you say, if you do that again, you know what's going to happen? You are giving yourself to the devil because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. A two-year-old doesn't understand that. And so you tell them that if you keep giving place to the devil, you're going to become a self-centered person and people aren't going to like you and you're going to lose friends. And if you ever get married, your marriage will fall apart because it's all about you. If you're all wrapped up in yourself, you make a very small package. And then if you get a job, you'll never be able to keep a job because it's all about you. You tell that to a one or a two-year-old and they don't know what you're talking about. But you can tell that one or two year old, say, you go over there and take that toy again and you're going to get a spanking. And they may not even know there is a devil. They may not know that there's a God or a devil, a heaven or a hell. They don't know anything about work and marriage or anything like that. But they know that if I go over there and do that, I'm going to get spanked and they will quit doing it for fear of punishment. And you use that as a temporary way of restraining people. But when they get older... Hopefully they aren't 40 years old worried about getting a spanking if they do something wrong. So anyway, it's a similar thing with the law. People under the old covenant weren't born again. They didn't understand. They didn't have the capacity to understand the way that a New Testament believer does. And so how did God restrain sin? Sin was destroying the human race. It was literally polluting the entire human race. How did God restrain sin until Jesus could come? The way he did it was the law. And it literally put fear in people. And because of that fear, people didn't commit as much sin because they were afraid of being punished and judged by God. But the sin that they committed had now more dominion over them and it made them more guilty and more fearful. And those, it's like, you know, if you see these ads on television, they say, if you have a headache, take this pill and then they'll give you the side effects. It could cause you to die. It could cause this. It could cause that. And I think, my Lord, I'd rather have the headache than to have all of these side effects. But in a sense, that's the way the law was. The law did accomplish something. It put fear in people and it made people resist the devil out of fear which isn't the proper motivation, but for a period of time, it did some good, but the side effects to it were damaging. Now under the new covenant, we have a new motivation. We serve God out of love, not out of fear. And we don't have any of these negative side effects. So when the Lord began to show me these things about the law, it began to answer my questions about why God could love me. I begin to realize that we're under a different covenant. God deals with things differently, that Jesus paid for my sins. And this morning, that's what I was sharing, is that Jesus has already paid a huge price. I am not making light of sin, but I am magnifying and putting more weight and more authority on the payment for our sins. And man, that was powerful this morning. I'd like to preach that again. I enjoyed it. 
Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 53, or actually chapter 54. I went from Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 53 this morning. Isaiah 54, of course, is after Isaiah 53. It's the results of what Jesus produced about him bearing our sorrows and carrying our griefs and all of these things. So in Isaiah 54, it begins to say all of these awesome things about what the benefits should be to this new covenant. This is an Old Testament scripture, but it's talking about what would happen when Jesus brought in the new covenant. And so after he had done all of this about Jesus bore our sorrows, carried our griefs, by his stripes we are healed. It says in Isaiah chapter 54, verse one, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. Now, why should a barren woman, of course, in the Bible especially, uh, barrenness was a plague. It was a curse. People, uh, Rebecca said that she, she just pled with uh, Jacob, or not Rebecca, that would have been Rachel, pled with uh, Jacob and said, give me children or else I'd die. I mean, why would a barren person sing and cry aloud for joy? What's the point of that? It goes on to say in the rest of this verse, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. This is talking in an allegory. It's in a spiritual sense. And because of what Jesus did, it's saying those of us who were barren spiritually, emotionally, we just were not able to produce. It seemed like we always fell short God is saying now through Jesus, because of what was done and accomplished in the 53rd chapter, those of you that have never been productive before, things have never worked for you, you need to break forth into song because you are going to prosper. You are going to see God move in your life through Jesus, not through you. Maybe you are barren, but Jesus isn't barren. And now you can receive through him and you can see him do things. So that's the point that's being made. And then in verse two, it says, enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. This is talking about because of what Jesus did in Isaiah 53, that now you are gonna prosper. You're gonna grow. You're gonna have so much that you won't have room enough to contain it. So you need to stretch out your tent and prepare for increase because of Jesus. And it's contrasting all of this with self-effort. The law is self-effort. It's you trying to clean yourself up. The new covenant, when Jesus, when you receive this through Jesus, he flows through you supernaturally. And holiness is a fruit. It's a byproduct of a relationship with God. In verse three, it says, for you shall break forth on the right hand and on the left and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither shalt thou be confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth and shall not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. All of this again is talking about a person in the new covenant, how that we are not gonna be ashamed, we will not be confounded, we're above only and not beneath, we're the head and not the tail. God always causes us to triumph In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world and on and on and on it goes. This is the same thing that all of this is prophesying. Just for time's sake, let me skip down a few verses because I got a lot to cover. 
In verse eight, it says, in a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy redeemer. That was not only true of the nation of Israel, that they went into bondage, but the Lord prophesied that he would bring them back and make a nation out of them again, which we saw happen in our day and age, a modern day miracle. But this is also true of us on an individual basis. For an individual, as an individual, there was a period of time where we were under the law, but now through Christ, we have been redeemed and now we have everlasting kindness on us. And then in this next verse, this is what I was really wanting to get to. In verse nine, it says, for this is as the waters of Noah unto me. Now, before I go on and tell you what is as the waters of Noah, this is very important. There are two different types of covenants in the Bible. There are covenants that say, you do this and I'll do this. That's a conditional covenant. But then there's other covenants where it doesn't matter what you do. This is what I'm going to do. And there's the Lord even said, it was quoted over in Hebrews chapter six, that the Lord swore by himself and said in blessing, I will bless you. And in, uh, in, I forgot the rest of that, but anyway, it's out of uh, Genesis chapter 22. What was it? Multiplying, I will multiply you. Thank you, Ashley. Man, what a deal. And so um, anyway, that was a quotation when uh, Abraham went to sacrifice his son. And when he did this, the Lord was so impressed. He says, I swear by myself that in blessing, I will bless you. And in multiplying, I will multiply you. So that's a different type of covenant. It doesn't have anything to do with you. And so when he says, this is as the waters of Noah unto me, he's referring back to, I'm making a covenant with you. Those of you who receive Jesus as your Lord, that I'm making a covenant with you that is an unconditional covenant. It's not based on your performance. That's what he's beginning to say right here. And this is significant because otherwise there's lots of covenants in the Bible, but most of the time we disqualify ourselves from it. But he's making a statement here that I'm making this covenant like I did with Noah. After the flood of Noah, God said that he swore by himself that he would never destroy the earth with a flood again. And it doesn't matter what men do. It doesn't matter how ungodly men get. God said he would never destroy the earth with the flood. And he set his bow in the cloud, the rainbow, as a token of that promise. And in the same way, you know, if he had made that a conditional covenant, then I guarantee you he would have destroyed the earth again because we're back as bad as it was in the days of Noah. But I can guarantee you we'll never have a worldwide flood again because God swore by himself, regardless of what you do, that he is never going to do that again. And his own integrity will hold him to it. Well, likewise, here is another covenant that he's making with those who accept Jesus and what he did that was prophesied here in Isaiah 53. And look at the terms of this covenant in verse nine, for this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. What a statement. God says he would never be angry with us. Once we enter that covenant through faith in Jesus, he's never angry with you or he will never rebuke you. 
Did you know, again, most people don't believe this because we haven't gone by the Bible. We've gone by our religious traditions. I've been in many churches where somebody stands up and gives a testimony about how they did something wrong and the Lord just got on their case and wouldn't let them rest. And he was rebuking them and he, they just felt the anger and the wrath of God. And finally they stand and say, I repent. God got me and they repent and everybody claps. And I think, what a terrible testimony. What a sorry testimony because God said that he would never be wroth with you nor rebuke you. God's not the one that's making you miserable. People all the time credit the Holy Spirit for the one who's making them just so miserable that God is just, and, and not only do they credit God, but there's people that intercede and they pray for this person who's out living in sin and they say, God, just get them. We sick the hounds of heaven on them. We believe that they are going to be miserable, that you're just going to make them miserable. That's not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, I quoted these verses, but in verse eight, it says that the Holy Spirit, when he has come, will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Three things. And he reproves of sin in verse nine. It says of the sin of not believing on him. He's not nailing you over every little rotten thing you do. It's all about just trust me. Believe anytime you get out of trusting him, the Holy Spirit will convict you of that. And then the next thing, he does all of these things simultaneously. He will convict you of righteousness, not unrighteousness. This is what most people think. The Lord will convict you that you're unrighteous. No, he will, he'll show you, you aren't trusting me, but you know what? You're in right standing with me. I love you. I'm not rejecting you. And then the last thing in verse uh, uh, 11, it says that he will convict you of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit doesn't come and make you feel miserable, but instead in love, he will say, you aren't trusting the Lord. Trust, trust Jesus. Lean on him instead of doing it your way. But remember, you're the righteousness of God and the devil has been judged. You're the victor and not the victim. It's all a positive ministry of the Holy Spirit. I had a whole teaching out there entitled The Positive Ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so most people don't really believe this, but God made a covenant right here that he would never be wroth with you, mad at you, or rebuke you. God is not mad at you tonight. I don't care what you've done. God is not mad at you. He's not even in a bad mood. God loves you. God's passionate about you. And I know that there are many of you that cannot accept this because you don't love yourself. You hate yourself. You look in the mirror and you see bulges and fat. You've been trying to lose weight and you just hate the way you look. And you see all kinds of things and you search your mind and you don't like this and you don't like that and you're self-conscious about all these things. There's so many things about yourself you don't like and you think, how could almighty God love me? It's because God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God's looking at your heart and in your heart, you are a born again person. You are a brand new person. And it says in Ephesians chapter two, I believe it's verse nine or 10, that you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. In the spirit, you are identical to Jesus. And God is looking at you in the spirit. He said in John 4, 24, those who worship him, must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is seeing you in the spirit. And because of this, he's not angry at you. God loves you. He's passionate about you. Every one of you. 
I know that's nearly too good to be true news. And most people just stumble at this because again, they're looking on the outside. You only know yourself in the flesh. You know, in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, Paul said, uh, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. In other words, they didn't know, they at one time, could tell you what Jesus' physical body looked like, but now they knew him by the Spirit. And he says, we don't know any man anymore after the flesh, but we know him after the Spirit. Did you know very few people live that way? Most people judge a person on the color of their skin or the clothes that they wear or the way that they talk or the house that they live in or the car that they drive and they know people only by these external things. But a true Christian, one that's following the Lord, doesn't judge a person based on any of these external things. You know a person in their heart. What are they like on a heart level? And God is looking beyond just your emotions. He's looking at your born again spirit and he sees you righteous and holy and pure and God is pleased with you. It says in Ephesians 1, 6 that you have been made accepted in the beloved. That word accepted in the beloved. The only other time that that Greek word is used in the Bible is when the angel appeared unto Mary and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. In the same way that Mary was highly favored to be chosen to be the woman through whom Jesus would be born, you are highly favored. You are accepted in the beloved. God loves you more than you can even imagine that he loves you. He will never be angry with you. He will never rebuke you. And the next verse continues this. It says, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. This says not only is he not going to be angry with you, he will not rebuke you, but God is going to be kind to you. Did you know that that is not a word that most people associate with God? Most people associate justice, wrath, punishment. God's going to get you. How dare God is kind. You know, the Lord will be kind to you if you would let him. Scripture says, let God be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servants. Psalms 35 verse 27. You have to let God be magnified. God can't show goodness to you without your cooperation. You have to believe it. And very few people think that God is really kind to them. Very few people. You know, most of us, When uh, the angel came unto Mary and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, she cast in her mind, what the King James says, cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. In other words, it bothered her. What's to be bothered by saying, Hail thou that art highly favored of God? Why are you bothered over that? It's religion. If the angel would have come and said, you sorry thing, you stink in the nostrils of God, she'd have said, it's God. (laughs) But you have somebody come in and say, hell, you're highly favored. You have somebody come in and say, God's not angry at you. God's not, will never rebuke you. His kindness will never leave and his covenant of peace with you will never depart. And you say that and religious folks say, I'm not sure that's God. Religion has taught us to expect wrath and judgment from God. 
But this is saying just the opposite. He'll be kind towards you. He's not going to punish you. And his covenant of peace. I wish I had time to teach on this. I got about a two hour teaching on the, on this covenant of peace. When the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards man. This isn't talking about peace among men, the way some of those translations do it, but there was war from God towards man because of the law. The law started holding people's sins against them and there was wrath, there was animosity, there was enmity between God and man. But when Jesus came, the angels were singing, it's the end of the war, the war is over, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men from God. The new covenant is ministering peace, not wrath and punishment and judgment. And this is what this is talking about, that this covenant of peace, that God has made peace with you through Jesus. He's never going to be angry at you again. He will never rebuke you. He will never take his kindness away. And this covenant of peace will not be gone. It says, as long as the mountains remain, You can't see mountains from here, but we live on a mountain. This is actually a picture of Pikes Peak taken from where our new Bible college is. And it's still there. I saw it today. Uh, So take my word for it. The mountains are still there. And as long as the mountains are there, it says even beyond when the mountains are taken away, his covenant of peace will never depart. God will never break his word. God is not mad at a single one of you. Again, does this mean that you're just free to go live in sin? God's going to love you. He's not going to take his kindness away. He's not going to take his covenant of peace, but you're just stupid if you go live in sin. You give Satan a direct inroad into your life every time you sin. Romans 6, 16, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself, servant to obey his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Every time you yield to sin, You yield yourself to Satan and you just give Satan free access to bring sickness, disease, poverty, depression, discouragement. But God loves you. His covenant of peace doesn't change, but you're just stupid if you go live in sin. Don't live in sin. That's crazy. Don't do it. But God has taken away his wrath and his punishment from you and he has given you mercy. Look over here in Hebrews chapter 10. I covered Hebrews chapter 7, 8, and 9 earlier in this week, and I want to go back to Hebrews chapter 10. And here's one of the points that I made. This really helped me when I understood that God punished Jesus for my sins. And I could understand then how a holy God could love me because he, he didn't let sin go. He punished it. He paid for sin, but he just didn't punish it in me. He punished it in his son. But another piece of this puzzle that really helped me to receive that God loved me and was pleased with me, even when I'm not pleased with myself, are these things that I'm going to talk about right here. In Hebrews chapter 10, He's talking about how Jesus died and put a will into effect. And then he rose from the dead so that he could enforce the uh, administration of his own will. That's pretty awesome. And here's what happened in verse 10. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, this is an amazing statement. 
It it says you've been sanctified. The word sanctified means to make holy or to set apart. And you have been made holy and set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. If you were here yesterday, I think it was yesterday morning when I was teaching that we've been forgiven of all sin, past, present, and even future. This fits right in with that. That Jesus one time died for your sins and dealt with all of your sins, past, present, and even future tense sins were dealt with. And through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, you have been sanctified, made holy once for all. I've had some people say, well, that means once for all people, but not once for all time. Every time you sin, you got to go back and get that sin under the blood and get confessed and get born again, again and stuff. That's not what it's talking about because look at it in context. Let's just keep reading. It's contrasting the way it was done under the old covenant with the way it's done under the new covenant. And in verse 11, it says, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. This shows you that it's not just talking about one sacrifice for all people. This is talking about one sacrifice for all time. Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 10 says you've been sanctified through the offering of Jesus once for all time. And verse 14 says if you've been sanctified, you've also been made perfect. Man, that is awesome. And again, most people just have a disconnect right here because they read this and then they look in the mirror and they say, this is perfect. (laughs) And they can see zits and gray hairs and bulges and ugly and things like that. And then they search their soulish realm and they have bad attitudes and they have fears and they have worries and they have cares. And they, most people are carnal The word carnal doesn't mean sinful. Now, all sin is carnal, but carnal means of the five senses. Most people only know themselves in the physical and emotional realm, and they think that that's all that there is to them. The Bible teaches that there is a third part to you, the spirit, and the spirit is the part that was totally changed. And this is talking about your spirit. You can tell that by observation. Your body's not perfect. There's scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that says this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. Your body's not saved yet. It's not changed. It's going to be changed at the last trump. And then it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that now we only know in part and we only prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, talking about when we go to be with the Lord and get a glorified body, then you'll know all things, even as also you are known. That hasn't happened yet. You don't know everything with your mind. Some of you can't even find your glasses when they're on top of your head. You don't know everything. But you know what? Someday our minds will be totally renewed. That hadn't happened yet. But the spirit part of you is completely brand new. And that's what this is talking about. 
When Jesus said that you had been sanctified and made holy, that's talking about your spirit. Ephesians 4, 24 says, put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Your spirit part of you was created righteous and holy, true holiness, implying that there's false holiness. False holiness is your good works, your self-righteousness. You need that to get along with people and stay out of jail and do things like that. But your self-righteousness doesn't help you one lick with God. God is a spirit and he's looking at you in the spirit and relating to you in the spirit. And even if you live holy in your actions, if your spirit is dead, you would go to hell because it's all about whether or not you've been born again, whether your spirit's changed. And conversely, if even though you act wrong out here, if you've been born again, your spirit has been sanctified and perfected forever. It was created in righteousness and true holiness. And this is talking about your spirit, that your spirit has been sanctified through the one offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And once it was sanctified, it's been perfected forever. Your spirit is perfect. And if anybody doubts that, look over in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 22. Let me remind you again that this is written by the same author. This is the same letter. Just because there's chapter and verses, it's not a different thought. It's the same thing being said. And here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it says, But you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Right here, it explains what part of you was sanctified and made perfect forever. It's your spirit. You can't see your spirit. You can't feel your spirit. You have to just go by what the word of God says. Jesus said in John chapter six, verse 63, that the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that quickens the words that I speak unto you. They are spirit and they are life. God's word is like a spiritual mirror and you just hold it up. And when it says that you've been sanctified and perfected forever, you can't see that in the mirror. You can't search your feelings and your emotions and see it. But the Bible says that there's a third part of you, the spirit, and the spirit has been sanctified and perfected forever. Now, what this did for me when I began to understand this, I finally let go of all of my reservations and began to start believing what the Bible said about me, that I was righteous, that God loved me separate from my performance. I couldn't understand it before this, but this finally let me see that, see, God is a spirit and God isn't looking on my outside and relating to me based on my actions, the way that I was, the way that other people were. God is looking at me in my spirit and I'm sanctified, perfected forever. My spirit is the part that was made perfect. And now I understand how a holy God can love an unholy me because he doesn't see me the way I see myself. God doesn't see you the way you see yourself. God sees you in the spirit and in the spirit, you become a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You have become the righteousness of God. 
in your spirit, you have the same power right now that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, lack of understanding this is the reason that religious do, religion does so many weird things, like trying to pray the power of God down. And they will say, oh God, rend the heavens and come down. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 64, verse one. Oh, that God would rend the heavens and it come down and that he would reveal his power and that he would do that. People pray that all of the time. People are praying and asking God to send revival. Oh God, pour out revival. It's a wrong prayer. Thank you for that thunderous silence. (laughs) Somebody said, what's wrong with revival? Nothing's wrong with revival, but if you are expecting God to send it, it's wrong. God's already sent revival. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in us bodily and it's not up to God whether revival comes. It's up to us whether we go out and start laying hands on the sick and seeing them recover, whether we stand up and command the things of God to come. But the body of Christ is still operating under the old covenant. Oh God, we have nothing. We are nothing. We can do nothing, but oh, if you would just rend the heavens and come down. What's wrong with that logic is God rent the heavens and came down through Jesus. And he has now released this covenant of peace. He's placed himself on the inside of you. And the way revival comes isn't by somebody begging God to send it. It's by somebody finding out what they have. In Philemon chapter one, verse six, Paul prayed for Philemon and he says, I pray that the communication of your faith would become effectual. That means it would begin to work by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. He didn't say, oh, I pray that your faith would begin to work by God touching you and giving you a double portion, doing something brand new. Oh, that God would move in your life. Oh, that God would touch you. No, you're already touched. Amen. You're touched in the head. You don't know what you got. We need to start finding out that God has already done this. And see, when I saw this, man, it all of a sudden clicked. And I said, now God, I know why you revealed and why you poured this love out on me when I was at my very worst. Because you don't see me the way I see myself. You were dealing with me based on who I was in Christ Jesus. And you just poured your love out on me because you are love, not because I am lovely. And it's changed my life now. And it's caused me to live holier. Some people again are going to think, well, yeah, the reason you're preaching this is so you can go live in sin. I am not living a life of sin. I'm living a life separated unto God, but I do it because I love God so much. I'm thankful so much for what he does. I serve him out of love, not out of fear of punishment and not trying to earn something and manipulate God. It's totally different. I've been on the other side of this. I've started all night prayer meetings where we were going to pray and we were going to grab hold of the horns of the altar and shake it until God came out. And we were going to make God sin revival. I've begged and pleaded. I've screamed. I've kicked. I've yelled. I remember one time I was leading one of these all night prayer meetings and I was just crying out, Oh God, save Arlington, Texas. That's what we were praying for. And I I even said this out my mouth. I said, God, if you loved Arlington, Texas, half as much as I do, we would see a revival. And when I said that, I thought something's wrong with this picture. I'm claiming that I love more than God does. 
you laugh, but I bet you many of you, you may not have said those same words, but you've pled with God. God, why aren't you pouring out your spirit on America? It's because the Christians are in their closet praying and begging God to do what he told you to do. He told you to go lay hands on the sick and they'd recover. Amen. He told you to cast out devils. He told you to raise the dead. And you're saying, oh God, I can't do anything. You're starting from a position of unbelief and begging God to send his power. God has already sent his power. It's in you, it's in me. And we need to start acknowledging what God has done. In Acts chapter three, Peter and John went into the temple at the hour of prayer and they saw a man who had been lame from birth. 38 years he had been lame. And they looked at him and they said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they reached down and grabbed him by the hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. Did you know they would have been kicked out of nearly any church in the world for saying such as I have. People say, who do you think you are? Don't you know that without Jesus, you can do nothing? Absolutely, I know that. Without Jesus, I can't heal a gnat. But I'm never without Jesus. He said, he'd never leave me nor forsake me. He's with me always. And for me to sit here and have this false religious thing that, oh God, we are nothing, we could do nothing. Would you please stretch forth your hand? That's an insult to Jesus. He said, he gave you power. You go out and do these things. I gave you power over all sickness, over all disease, over all demons. You know, it's chicken way out, the way that most people pray. Because it's easy to say, oh God, we can't do anything. Would you please touch him, please, pretty please, if it be thy will, for Jesus' sake. And then if nothing happens, well, God's sovereign. Must have been God's will. God needed an angel in heaven more than we needed him here on earth. That's what they told me when my dad died. The pastor of the church came over and says, God needed your father in heaven more than you needed him. I was only 12 years old and I I knew better than that. I thought, what does God need my father for? But see, that's a chicken's way out. It's just easy that you pray your prayer and you throw it out there. And if something happens, well, then must've been God's will. And if nothing happened, well, God's sovereign. No, he told you to go heal the sick. He didn't tell you to pray for the sick. There's not a command in the New Testament for you to pray for the sick. There's examples of people praying for the sick. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for the sick, but you need to pray a prayer of authority. And it says the prayer of faith will save the sick. But see, people are afraid to do that because if you stand up and say in the name of Jesus, I command sickness to go. What if nothing happens? Then you got egg on your face. And so it's easier to just say, well, God, we can do nothing. If it be your will, please heal him. And that's a chicken's way out. It's a easy way to live. But that's not what the Lord said. You've been changed. On the inside, you are sanctified and perfected. Ephesians chapter one, verse 18 and 19, you have the same power on the inside of you that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This power isn't out there somewhere. It's on the inside of you. And again, the body of Christ, oh God, stretch forth your hand, send your power, oh Lord. That's an affront against Jesus. 
You're saying that Jesus didn't accomplish what the Bible said he did. You need to start believing that God's done his part, that he's filled you. We are full of the power of God. Now I will admit this, that you've got to renew your mind. It says in Romans chapter 12, verse two, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's not so simple just to have the power in your spirit. You've got to get your mind renewed before this power can flow through you and out of you and touch people and change people. And so it's, there are some things that we have to learn and we have to grow in this. But the first step is acknowledging that you've got it. And most Christians don't believe this. See, this just totally changed my life when I understood that in my spirit, I was now righteous already. I was already sanctified and perfected. And God is a spirit, John 4, 24. God deals with me in spirit and in truth. And now I understand how almighty God can love me because in my spirit, I'm as pure and holy as Jesus is. Some of you just choked on that one. Like, how dare you say such a thing? First John chapter four, verse 17 says, herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, Jesus, as he is right now, so are we in this world. It didn't say, so are we going to be in the next world? So are we in this world? How can you believe that Jesus is exactly like you? You can't believe that if you're looking at the physical body because your body's not changed. He's not like you in your thoughts. But in your spirit, you're identical to Jesus. And because of that, the law wasn't made for a righteous man, a man that's now identical to Jesus and in touch with him. It was made for the lawless and the ungodly. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And once you get born again, now you are connected to God, spirit to spirit. And God changes your heart. He changes your want to. And we don't have to live by external things. You know, there's a scripture in uh, Psalms chapter 32. David wrote this and he was prophesying about the new covenant that you and I are living under. And he says, blessed are the people who God will not impute sin unto. He didn't say did not, does not, but will not. He was seeing by prophecy that there was coming a day that you and I have. And he said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And then later in that same chapter, chapter 32, it says, don't be like a horse or a mule whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle lest he turn on you and rend you. Don't be like an animal that has to have pain to keep them straight. But now you're born again and your spirit is united. Your heart's changed and we can just serve God because the law has been written in our heart because we love God. Man, that's awesome. And yet very few Christians are doing this. Most Christians are still letting circumstances, external things, punishments and stuff correct them. If they can get by with it, most Christians go ahead and do it. But man, if you were truly changed and if you were understanding who you are in Christ, you would value so much 
what God has put on the inside of you, that if you were focused on that, it says Proverbs 23, 7, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. If you were thinking on who you are and what Jesus has done, you would just wind up reproducing this holiness and this purity that's in your spirit. But most of us see ourselves as a failure. We see ourselves as an old sinner saved by grace. And so you go out and act act like a sinner because that's who you think you are. If you could ever see that, no, I was an old sinner, but I got saved by grace and now I am the righteousness of God. I'm sanctified and perfected forever. And if you ever saw that, and if that became your identity, you would wind up serving God more accidentally than you've ever done it on purpose before. It would just be your fruit. You would bear fruit. Look at this over in Romans chapter six. Man, this is a great uh, passion portion of scripture right here. Romans chapter six. And in verse 19, he says, I speak after the manner of man because of the infirmity of your flesh. In other words, he, this isn't really the way that we should reason. We should use spiritual things and compare spiritual things with spiritual. But since these people were so dull of hearing, he says, I'm going to talk to you in human natural terms in things that you can understand in a carnal way. I'm speaking this because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. Modern paraphrase of that is live as strong for God as you did for the devil. Amen. You ought to serve God with the same fervor that you served the devil with. In verse 20, for when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Man, those are awesome things. Look at verse 20. It says, for when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. The term servants of sin is talking about before you were born again. You were a slave of sin. You were free from righteousness. What does free from righteousness mean? Does this mean that a person who's not born again can't do anything that is righteous, anything that's good? Certainly not. Lost people sometimes can love and do things good and help. You know, even lost people do some good things. But this is saying that your goodness, when you're lost, can't change your nature. You are by nature a child of the devil. Most people don't believe that. I had not got time to teach on that. But Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says that you were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Yet there is a spirit that works in the children of disobedience. Every person that doesn't know the Lord, I don't care if they are nice people, if they're kind people, if they're good people, if they invent things and do things to help people. We were all born with a sin nature and we are separated from God. And it doesn't matter if you are better than I am, who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? All of sin comes short of the glory of God and you must be born again. So this is saying that lost people can do good things. They can do righteous things, but those righteous actions don't change your sinful nature. 
You have to be born again by an act of faith in what Jesus did. Not by, you don't become better by acting better. You become, you get born again and then actions are the byproduct of that relationship with God. Now, most people will accept, most Christians will accept Romans chapter six, verse 20. But look in Romans 6, 22. It's using the exact terminology, but it's reversed it now. In Romans 6, 22, it says, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God. If servants to sin in verse 20 was talking about before you're born again, now servants to God is talking about after you're born again. And if you were free from righteousness when you were lost, that meant that those good acts couldn't change your sinful nature. Now it says you are free from sin. This doesn't mean that Christians can't sin, but it means that that sin can't change your righteous nature any more than your good actions could change your sinful nature. That's what this is saying. That's powerful. If you believe the Bible, how in the world can you sit there and think that when you've sinned that God has turned away from you, that God's forsaken you? You wouldn't sit there and say, well, just because you did something good that you're automatically born again. No, you have to receive that as salvation. It's not based on your actions. Well, you don't get your old nature changed by your good actions. You don't get your new nature changed by your bad actions. This completely kills the old Pentecostal doctrine of save, lost, save, lost, save, lost. Every time you sin, you lose your salvation. Amen. I can tell that didn't bless a lot of you, but I'm telling you that this is true. It just revolutionized my life to find out that God loves me based on what he did. I am his workmanship in Christ Jesus, created unto good works God is a spirit. God sees me in the spirit and God's pleased with me. God loves me. God loves you more than we have ever let him demonstrate. More than we have ever let him manifest it in our lives. I, you know, again, I go back to Psalms 35, 27. Let God be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. You have to let God be good to you. You have to let him do it. Most of us won't let him. God does good things for you all of the time and we just reject it. We don't understand it. You know, when I first was shown these things, I was still in the Baptist church and I was struggling with this mindset of, of, you know, God being upset with me and I didn't do everything right. And we used to have to drive 45 miles on Sunday to go to church. And it was so long of a drive that we would stay over in the afternoons and then go to the Sunday night service. And we would just stay with people over there. And anyway, during this period of time, there was this one couple that we went over to their house a lot. And their daughter was not a Christian. She hated Christians. She hated her parents for being a believer. And she, uh, of all Christians on the face of the earth, hated me more than anybody else. She couldn't stand me. And anyway, I was over there one afternoon and I got really sleepy and they said, just go up into our daughter's room and take a nap. And I, you know, she was gone because she heard I was coming over to the house. So she was gone. We didn't expect her back. And I thought, well, it's okay. So anyway, I went and laid on her bed and took a nap and I was in a sound sleep and I heard the door open. And when I heard that, I mean, I woke up instantly like that. But my first thought was that this girl doesn't want to see me. I don't want to see her. 
And so I just laid there and played possum. And I just laid there with my eyes closed and I could hear her walking around and she opened up the closet door and she opened up a drawer and I didn't, I figured she'd forgotten something and was getting it and stuff. And I listened to her move around and stuff. And then she walked over and stood right beside the bed and I could hear her breathing. And by that time I was afraid to open my eyes. (laughs) So I just laid there and acted like I was asleep. And then she sat down on the edge of the bed. I could feel the, you know, bed go down. And then she put an arm across me and leaned across and kissed me right on the mouth. And when that happened, man, I opened my eyes. And there wasn't anybody in the room. Nobody was there. And I sat right up in bed and looked around and thought, what happened? And my first thought was, that was the Lord. But then immediately I thought, if it had been the Lord, he'd have slapped me or rebuked me, but God wouldn't kiss me. And then the Lord spoke to him and he says, if I loved you enough to die for you, don't you think I'd kiss you? And you know what? I didn't tell that to people probably for a decade because people were like, who do you think you are? They would judge me based on my flesh and they'd think God would never kiss you. But you know what? That was God showing me that he loved me. There's been times, Jamie and I have been in services. I remember sitting in Catherine Kuhlman's service one time and we saw miracles happen, miracles happen. And then the service was over and everybody just got up and left. And Jamie and I sat there probably for at least 30 minutes or something like, how can these people leave? We are in the presence of the Lord. And we just sat there stunned. God had touched us in such a powerful way. And I was ministering in Omaha, Nebraska. And when I got ready to leave, I saw people doing that exact same thing. I saw people just sitting there. They were stunned. They were stunned by the power of God and the word and how much God loved them. And as I was driving back to my hotel room, I was just thanking the Lord and remembering how he had touched our lives and how he had impacted us. And I was saying, Father, thank you for seeing these people's lives change. I knew what was happening with them. And I said, Father, thank you for touching them. And as I was praising the Lord and thanking him, the Lord said, well, thank you, Andrew. You know, most people say, God would never thank you. See, you don't believe that he's got a covenant of kindness. You don't believe he'll be kind. You don't think that he has peace with you. Most of us won't let God tell you how much he loves you. But if you would change the way you think, did you know God would tell you all of the time that he loves you? He would point out good things in your life. But most of us have been so conditioned, the only time we think God is speaking to us is when you're miserable, when you're suffering, when something's wrong. God's trying to get my attention. The Holy Ghost is convicting me over something. Most of us won't let God love us. If you would sit down and, and, you know, just in a sincere heart say, God, do you really love me? Is there anything that you really like about me? And if you would let God speak to you, God would go to saying some awesome things to you. God would become your best friend. God would say awesome things to you. He'd tell you how much he loves you. Even when you're in the midst of all your problems. Even when you've sinned. Even when you've messed up. God would just tell you that he's proud of you. 
Amen. Some of you think, no, he wouldn't. Yes, he would. You don't know God. And it's because the Old Testament law, again, focused our attention only on our sins. It constantly made us aware of how far short we were. And most of us will not let God be magnified in our life. We won't let God's love flow towards us. We are limiting what God can do. You know, I'm going to make a statement here that at first sounds wrong, but it's right. And that is that God will be to you the way you think he is. God is who he is, regardless of what you think. But as far as your experience goes, God won't force himself on you. God's a gentleman. God will not come and just scream over your doubt and your unbelief and make you believe. He will be to you the way you think he is. If, you know, I lived for a long period of time thinking that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and miracles passed away with the apostles and that those don't work today. And did you know what? God dealt with me without forcing that down my throat. And he, he let me worship him as a God who was the great I was, not the great I am. And he met me where I was. And that's how I had a relationship with him. And then I found out about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, miracles. And when I started realizing that that's the way he was, I started believing. Guess what? He started manifesting himself in those things. Some of you have heard my testimony, but 10 years, it's actually been 11 years ago now, the Lord showed me I was limiting him by my small thinking. And I knew that God had called me to have a worldwide ministry. He told me that 45 years ago. And I was moving in that direction. We were doing some good things and seeing some good results. But boy, the Lord rang my bell January the 31st, 2002. And from Psalm 78, 41, and he says, you have limited me. You are limiting what I can do. You with your small thinking are limiting me. And it's a long story, but when I saw that, I changed and I started thinking big and I don't even have the vocabulary to tell you how much my life and ministry has changed in the last 11 years. We are at least 10 or 11 times as big in income number of people that we're reaching, things that are happening. I mean, it's just, it's indescribable what God did. And it's not God that changed. It was me that changed in my thinking about what God could do. And all of a sudden God rose to the level that I believe. But if you think God is angry at you, God's not going to be mad at you and treat you bad, but he will be limited in his ability to show you how much he loves you because you won't let him. You would rebuke it. If he came in and did something good for you, you'd say, that's a devil. I rebuke that. He's not going to do that. He will only flow in your life to the degree that you will open up your heart and receive. And it's not God who's not loving us. It's us who will not let God love us because we're living under an old covenant that is releasing his wrath, his punishment, his condemnation, instead of his love. Under the new covenant, what we have is so infinitely greater that we don't have to be fearful of his punishment and be like a horse or a mule that has to have some kind of pain before we change. 
You're changed from the inside out. And it goes on to say in this verse right here, I don't think I read all this, but in Romans 6, 22, it says, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Holiness is a fruit of having this relationship with God. It's not the root. It's not what produces relationship with God. It comes as the byproduct of relationship with God. If you could just receive by faith that Jesus has paid for all of your sins and that God is a spirit and he sees you in the spirit, you're sanctified and perfected forever. You're holy and that he loves you. And if you could just walk in that by faith, because it's what God's word says, if you ever access that and if you ever tap into this love of God, you will serve God more through love than you ever did through fear. You don't have to be afraid that you're going to go out and just start living in sin because the love of Christ will constrain you is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 15. The love of Christ will constrain you. Let me use this one last passage and I'm going to quit with this maybe, hopefully. In 1 John chapter 3, it says in verse 1, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. Then verse two says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we will see him as he is. Man, that's a great scripture. I could preach on that. I'm trying to get to the next verse, but if you ever see him as he is, you will be like him. The reason we're going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye is because we're going to see him as he is and boom, it will instantly change you into his image. And to the degree that you can see him as he is right now, you will be changed into that image. This is the reason that no man can see God and live. It's not that if God, if you caught a peak of God, he's going to kill you for looking at him. It's because he is so awesome. He is so holy that this physical body can't contain it. You would self-destruct. You would die if you were to see the true glory of God. He is so glorious that these physical bodies can't contain it. And when we do see him coming in the clouds, these physical bodies are instantly going to be changed into an incorruptible body. Man, that's powerful. And then verse three says, and every man, every man, that has this hope in him, purifies himself even as he is pure. If you truly have this hope, which is talking about being like him, seeing him as he is and being changed into that same image, then you, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself. Any person who would take the things that I've said about God not dealing with your sins and God loves you and it doesn't matter what you act like out here, he sees you in the spirit. And if anybody would take those kind of things and say, well, man, this frees me to go live in sin. This is great news. You ought to get born again because you don't have this hope in him. If you truly are born again, you want to live for God. You may not be doing a good job of it, but you do want to live for God. And when you remove the restraints and a person understands how much God loves them, they start purifying themselves even as he is pure. 
You know, before I had this experience with the Lord, I was born again when I was eight, but I became religious and I thought I had to do things to earn God's favor. And I was always trying to do something. I was an introvert. I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. I couldn't, I couldn't look at you and talk to you. That's not an exaggeration. I was a senior in high school and somebody said hi to me on the street and they were two blocks down the street and I sat in my car and said, hi. (laughs) Two blocks later, it took me that long to say hi. I was painfully shy. And even in that situation, I was so motivated to do something to please God. And I'd hear these sermons about there's going to be blood on your hands if you don't tell your neighbor. And so even though I was an introvert, I forced myself to go through these soul winning classes and I started a special youth visitation. The adults went visiting on Thursday and I went with them. And then I started a special youth visitation on Tuesday nights and I'd go out and knock on doors and lead people to the Lord. Even though I was a total introvert, I wouldn't even look at them. I'd look down at the ground and I'd just recite my spiel. And if you do it right, and if you say there, if you use the Roman road is what we were taught, Romans 3, 23, Romans 5, 8, Romans uh, 6, 23 and stuff. And if you use this and do it right, and then you come to the end and say, is there a reason that you can't pray with me right now and receive Jesus as your Lord? There's very few people that'll say, yeah, leave me alone. I want to go to hell. <laughs> and you can get them to recite the prayer after you and I'd have them recite the prayer and then I'd take their scalp and go back to church and tell everybody, man, look, what, look how many people I led to the Lord. When I was 14, 15 years old, I was leading three and four people a week to the Lord and I was a total introvert. But in my heart... I was praying, oh God, don't let there be anybody home. Because I got credit (laughs) for going visiting. If I knocked on the door and left a track in the name of the church, I got credit. And that's all I was after. I was doing it for me. I was doing it to earn something from God. I didn't love God. I loved myself. And I didn't love people. I wanted credit. I didn't want to be embarrassed. So in my heart, I'd be praying, oh God, don't let there be anybody home. But you know, after I had this experience and I found out how much God loved me and I found out I don't, God doesn't care if I ever went visiting. He loves me the way I am. Did that make me quit visiting? No, instead, I quit the Thursday and the Tuesday night visitation. And some of you think, "Uh uh-huh, that's what I thought this grace does. What I did, I quit the, making the three visits on Thursday night and three visits on Tuesday night. And I realized I was letting a hundred people go by me every day. And so I just started witnessing to everything that moved. I would stand up in a restaurant and pray out loud over everybody's food. And when I got through, I'd say, well, you need your food blessed too. And I saw people born again doing that. I'd see them coming out of a 7-Eleven and man, I'd grab them and say, you need Jesus. And I just witnessed to anything that moved. We started making a hundred visits a day and we made the mistake of starting in the rich part of town. You know, the Bible says that the poor heard Jesus gladly. I hadn't read that one yet. And I went to the rich people and the rich people didn't want to hear about Jesus and they were slamming doors in my face. We came up with Christian surveys that we had printed up and it was all a con. 
We weren't, we weren't doing a survey. The, we asked all of these questions and different things about how many people live in your house and what church do you go to? And the bottom line was, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And that's always after. When we got to the car, we threw the things away. It was just a, a prop to get us to come in and talk to the people. But even with all of these things, people were still slamming the doors in my face. And so one day, I was so determined I was going to get this next woman to listen to me that if I had to stick my foot in the door, I was going to do it. And I was saying, oh God, give me something. Help me to speak to this person. Help me to get past these things. And you know, people would tell you that they were Christians. They didn't know what a Christian was. I actually had a person pull a coin out of their pocket and say, right here, it says, in God we trust. Of course I'm a Christian. (laughs) They didn't know what a Christian was. So anyway, I went up to this one house and God just gave me an idea and I knocked on the door and this woman comes to the door and she only opened it about that wide, had the chain on and she was looking through that thing at me and she said, what do you want? And I said, praise God, I finally found a Christian. And she looked at me and she says, a Christian? What makes you think I'm a Christian? And I said, well, you got a scripture on your fence out here. And this woman undid her chain and she walked out on the front porch. She says, where do I have a scripture? And I just turned over to Philippians 3, 2, and I read it. It says, beware of dogs. And I just kept reading. (laughs) I was able to read all of that chapter before she slammed the door in my face. Amen. But the reason I tell that story is to say that when you see how much God loves you, instead of serving God less, you'll serve him more. I went from making six visits on two nights to making a hundred visits a day. I went from being introverted and worried about what everybody thought about me to where I just didn't care. I would do anything to have somebody listen to the goodness of God. I'm telling you, you will not serve God less if you ever understand the grace and the goodness of God. You will serve God more than you ever have before. You don't need to worry about it. If you truly have this hope in him, you will purify yourself, even as he is pure. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we've been approaching it all wrong from trying to restrict our actions and earn God's favor. What you need to do is just receive these truths that I've talked about and find out that you're already sanctified and perfected forever. Find out how much God loves you. And if you ever get a revelation of that, you will, you'd give up bubble gum if you thought that that would please the Lord. Man, you'd give up anything. You'll love God so much you'd do anything for him out of love as a fruit and not the root of your salvation. If you have to preach to people, go out and tell people about Jesus or there's good, you're going to stand there and they're going to drag your neighbor right in front of you and throw him over the prep you know, the precipice into hell. And he's going to be looking at you as he's drugged by and say, why didn't you tell me? And there's going to be blood on your hands. I heard that sermon. You know why that motivates people to witness? Not because you love God or people, it's you love yourself and you're embarrassed and you don't want to be embarrassed. And so you will go out and do just enough to soothe your conscience. But when you understand how much God loves you and you understand that he loves everybody, the same way you will fall in love with God and in love with people so much that you will put up with their criticism and rejection and you'll just, you know, a person spit in your face. I've had people do this and wipe the spit off and never miss a word in the sentence because it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about loving other people and it will cause you to live holy. Amen. 
We need a revelation of how much God loves us. And it's all in here. And the Holy Spirit is sent to be our teacher to explain this to us. But you have to show up for class. You have to attend class. Many of us have been skipping class. Many of us have been going to the wrong class. We've been sitting under the law instead of sitting under grace. Man, I just pray that tonight God opens your heart and helps you to understand that you're under a new covenant where God will never be angry at you. He'll never rebuke you. His kindness will never leave from you. The war is over. We have a covenant of peace. You're sanctified. You're perfected forever. You're righteous, holy, and pure in your spirit. God loves you. God's passionate about you. And if you will let him, he'll start showing you how much he loves you. He'll say good things to you. He'll build you up instead of tear you down. He'll tell you that you're highly favored, that you're accepted in the beloved. Man, that's awesome. I just pray in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit makes these truths that we've talked about come alive in your life, that the Holy Spirit would make you understand that God loves you. God is not the one who's making you miserable. God's not the one who's punishing you. God is not the one who's held back your healing, your prosperity, your deliverance because you haven't done something perfectly. It's our own condemnation that limits what God can do in our life. We, he can only be to us the way we believe that He is. He can't go beyond our faith. Father, I pray that you help people to understand this, that you help people to know that you love them. Father, that we would let you love us. Father, for those that are under condemnation and guilt, Father, I pray that this is broken now by the Word of God, that, Father, our hearts are opened up and that we receive this good news. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we welcome your revelation. The Bible says in John chapter 14, verse 26, but when the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, is come, he will will, uh, bring, teach you all things, lead you into all truth, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've spoken unto you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to reveal Jesus' love. It says in Romans chapter 5, I believe verse 5, that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says, The natural man, talking about just in your natural mind, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit has to impart this revelation to you. You know, the things I'm sharing about Jesus through these scriptures and stuff, nobody ever taught me this. I didn't learn this from anybody. This is just sitting in the presence of God and praying and asking. And the Holy Spirit revealed these things to me. The Holy Spirit will reveal this, but you must receive the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of people that think that they got all that there is to salvation when they got born again. In your spirit, your spirit's completely changed. But Jesus had to have the Holy Spirit come upon him. He told his disciples who were already born again, he told them, tarry until you receive power from on high. And when they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, immediately Peter preached a message on the day of Pentecost that was awesome. 
completely different from the way he had been before. There was supernatural impartation of revelation and they all spoke with tongues. Part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. If you don't have that, it's impossible for you to get what I'm talking about tonight. Even with the Holy Spirit, you have to yield to it. You have to spend time. You have to let the Holy Spirit instruct you. It's not automatic, but without the Holy Spirit, it's impossible. It's impossible for you to understand or retain what you've heard tonight. You've got to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you don't speak in tongues, if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, you need it. Somebody says, well, I believe I've got the baptism, but I don't speak in tongues. I believe it's possible. I don't, I'm not speaking in tongues right now and I got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You don't, God doesn't force you to speak in tongues, but I'm telling you that when I started speaking in tongues, it's like it just sped up, it increased a hundred times over. Speaking in tongues is important. It's vital. If you don't speak in tongues, you need to receive it. Is there anybody here tonight who would raise your hand and say, man, I'd like to receive that. I want everything of God that I can get. I need this revelation of the Holy Spirit and I want you to pray for me. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand and I want to pray with you. There's people here all over. Man, that's awesome. How many people have we had receive in the previous four messages? 160 people have already received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there's about what, a 10 or 12? How many? 15 that have received salvation. So we've already seen great things. But man, there's another 20, 30, 40 people here tonight that need to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I tell you, God wants you to know His love more than you want to know it. But the Holy Spirit is how God reveals this. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that is given unto us. So if you raised your hand for prayer, or if you were supposed to raise your hand and didn't do it, would you just get up out of your seat and come forward? And we want to pray with you and help you to receive right here tonight. Please come forward right now if you would like to receive prayer. Receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I tell you what, this will change your life. I really believe that. It changed my life. Man, this will just make you stronger and horseradish. Praise God. Totally change you. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Father. You know, this is our last opportunity during these meetings for you to come. There's some people that have been here all of the time and you haven't come forward. Maybe you've prayed in the past and you didn't speak in tongues or something and you were disappointed and so you aren't even trying. You don't want to be discouraged again. You know, you need to come forward and let us pray with you. You need to be up here every single time. You need to pursue this. If you don't pursue the Lord, you won't find Him. It says, you shall seek and you shall find me when you shall search with all your heart. Some people only give token effort to it. And if it doesn't come easily, then they just quit. It's not that God demands that you do all of these things, but He just wants you to search with all of your heart. 
you need to come. If you have been discouraged in the past, don't let that stop you from coming and receiving here tonight. Praise God. Anybody else? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Still got a few people coming up here. I know some of you think, well, I I need to think about this. Man, don't think about it. Just do it. Do what's in your heart. If you go back and give yourself time to think about it, you'll talk yourself out of it. But right now, if God has touched you, you just need to come forward. You know, if you don't speak in tongues, you ought to be down here. That's another way of saying it. If you don't speak in tongues, you ought to be down here. Somebody says, well, I'm afraid I'd get something from the devil. The Bible says in Luke 11:13, if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? He's not going to let you get something from the devil. Amen. He's going to give you what you ask for. Anybody else? Praise God. You know, before I can pray with you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you first of all have to be born again. And man, I talked tonight about what true salvation is. It's having your nature changed. It's not about being good and stuff. You could be a good, good person, but that doesn't produce salvation in your life. Your good works cannot change your sinful nature. You just have to be born again. Is there anybody down here who's not absolutely certain that you're born again? Again, there's a lot of people that go to church and they think because I go to church... And because I'm a relatively good person, I'm hoping that that's enough. That's not it. The Bible says that when you get born again, you know that you've passed from death unto life. You have a witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And you know that you've passed from death to life. Is there anybody here who's not sure about whether you've done that? You need to pray with me first and make sure that you've been born again. Because you can't receive the Holy Spirit in the gift of speaking in tongues until you first of all receive Jesus. Is there anybody who needs to pray and make sure that you've been born again, that your nature has changed? Anybody, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand so I can see and we'll pray with you. Anyone? Anybody? Are all of you born again? You know that you're born again. You're sure? I'm not trying to talk you out of it. I just want to make sure that you're sure. Well, amen. If you all are born again, then you know what the Bible says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6 that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You were created to be a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. The reason that's important is because this is what God made you for. He wouldn't deny you the Holy Spirit. Some people teach that you got to get rid of all sin in your life and be holy before you can receive the Holy Spirit. If you could get holy without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. The very reason that he wants to give you power is so that you can overcome sin in your life. So if you've got some problem in your life, don't let some sense of unworthiness stop you from believing that God's given you the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit and he will give the Holy Spirit to you. He's just been waiting on you to open up the door of your heart and let him in. Amen. So I'm just going to pray a real simple prayer with you. It's not going to be long. And we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come fill you with the Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to ask my prayer ministers to come up here and stand behind you. And the reason I do this is because the Bible says that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was given. There's many examples of that in the Bible. 
And these are all people that already have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer and then they're going to stand behind you and after I invite the Holy Spirit to come in, they're going to lay hands on you and release this power into you. And the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon your life. Sometimes people feel awesome things. Sometimes people get really excited. When I received the Holy Spirit, I didn't feel a thing. I just did it by faith. And I believed I got it. And I forced myself to start speaking in tongues. This is another thing that is a a thing that people get confused on. They think that the Holy Spirit will just come upon you and make you speak in tongues. You know, that it'll be uncontrollable. It's kind of like when you throw up, you just can't help it. Put your hand over your mouth and it's going to come out. That's not how speaking in tongues is. It's very similar to when I preached tonight. I believe that God spoke through me. I asked him to speak through me, but I didn't just open up my mouth and wait on him to make it talk. I spoke. It was me. That's the reason it came out in Texan. It was me talking. But you know what? I believe God inspired it. That's the way it is with speaking in tongues. It says in Acts 2, 4, they spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance or the inspiration. You have to speak and by faith believe that the Holy Spirit's inspiring it. And at first you'll think this is just me. I'm just making silly statements. But once you get your mind off of it and you start worshiping the Lord and doing this by faith, God will confirm to you that He's inspiring it. And I tell you, it's a powerful experience. I've got a book that will explain this whole thing to you. But in a nutshell, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to lead you in this prayer. They're going to lay hands on you. And after they lay hands on you, I want you to quit praying in English and asking for the Holy Spirit. And I want you to start thanking Him out loud that He gave you the Holy Spirit. Not because you feel something, but because you believe His promise. And when you do that, I want you to lift your hands and start thanking Him like this. Because the Bible says when you lift up your hands in the sanctuary, you bless the Lord. This blesses God. It's like when you stick a gun in a person's back and they go, I surrender. I yield. This is your way of saying, God, I just give up. I receive. And, and so we're going to lift our hands and start thanking God. And then those people in here who already pray in tongues, we're all going to start speaking in tongues because the Bible says when you speak in tongues, you're giving thanks in a heavenly language, 1 Corinthians 14, 17. So we're going to start praying in tongues. And when we do, we want you to quit praying in English and start praying in tongues. It's really that simple. And I know some of you are thinking, well, I don't know what to say. How do I do this? You can try and say what you hear the person behind you say, but your tongue will be unique to you. It won't be like anybody else's. It won't sound the same. And if you try and say what they're saying, it'll come out different. So when it comes out different, don't quit. Just keep talking. And anyway, God will show you. I've got this book that will explain things, but that's what we're going to do. Y'all ready? The Bible says, believers, we'll speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I am a believer. And I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you for all of these. Thank you that we are already the temple of the Holy Spirit. All of us have prayed and made Jesus our Lord and that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we open up the doors of our temple and Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come into every one of these temples. Come fill your temple. 
come dwell in us. Give us this gift of speaking in tongues and all of this power. We just open up our heart right now and welcome you to come in Jesus' name. Now we lay hands on you and say, receive the Holy Spirit right now in the name of Jesus. We loose this power of the Holy Spirit into each one of your lives. Holy Spirit, come and just flow through them. Right now, just release the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Man, there's the power of God. Catch that woman. In the name of Jesus, Father, we release this power through all of these people in Jesus' name. Now, let's put your hands up and go to thanking God that He gave you the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for giving us this Holy Spirit. We thank you that right now we are God-possessed, that we have this power of God and we have this ability to speak in tongues. I'd like to ask all of you that have this baptism of the Holy Spirit to go to speaking in tongues right now. Let's worship the Lord. And as we speak in tongues, you join in with us and just speak right now. Just be bold and talk right now. She's speaking in tongues. She's healed. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Just speak in tongues right now. Talk in tongues right now. Glorify God. Speak in the name of Jesus. Don't worry about what it sounds like. Don't worry about what it sounds like. When a little baby starts talking, it doesn't sound like a full language, but man, that father knows what that baby's saying. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Father. Hallelujah. Praise God. Be bold. Talk loud enough that you can hear yourself. Just talk now. Focus your attention on the Lord. You're bypassing your brain. You're bypassing all of the doubt and the unbelief. And you're praying from your born again spirit, the part of you that is sanctified and perfected forever. You're praying in without any doubt and any unbelief. It's powerful. Just speak. Brother, your life's never going to be the same. And you've been searching for something more. Here is the power of God. You are going to be just on fire for God. I release the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire on the inside of you. Father, we agree and receive it. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Awesome. Let me have your attention here for just a minute. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you know, whether you prayed in tongues or not, I believe God gave you the Holy Spirit because he promised that he would. When I first asked for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and tried to pray in tongues, I didn't pray in tongues the very first time but it's because I was a Baptist and I'd been taught that that was of the devil and I just had so many problems about it that I wouldn't let myself speak in tongues. I was waiting on God to force me. 
but I kept at it. I learned things through the Word of God, and now I speak in tongues with the best of them. And I've written all of these things in this book, and it will explain the whole thing. It'll answer your questions. I can promise you that this is more important than any of you understand right now. You need to get into the Word, find out what the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what this gift of speaking in tongues, what it will do for you. And I've got all of this written in a book that I'd like to give you as my gift. So we've got, is this uh, David? I should know this. Been a Bible college student for three years. But anyway, David over here with his hand up and his Bible in his hand, he's going to lead you right over here to this prayer room. If you would go with him, they'll give you a book. They'll answer your questions and pray with you. And praise God. We believe that you are going to be blessed, blessed, blessed.